at the end of the day, I would say operationalizing zero trust, that's the key challenge. And from a technical perspective, it's not so much in the zeros and ones of the coding, but it's really about the technical integration persistently. Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, brought to you by AWS. Justice CIO Melinda Rogers on securing national security systems. And inside DOJ's journey to zero trust. It's Thursday, February 29th, 2024. Happy Leap Day and welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. FedScoop this week published an investigative piece revealing that scores of FEMA employees brought government mobile devices abroad, including the countries like China and Iraq, without authorization, a practice that heightens security risks and violates broader Department of Homeland Security mobile device policy. A document obtained by FedScoop shows that many of the devices were tracked in countries that Americans commonly visit for vacation, including the Dominican Republic, the United Kingdom, and Mexico. But that list, which displays devices that had access restricted and were beginning to be investigated after being used abroad, also shows that employees brought government devices to countries that fall under the International Traffic in Arms Regulation country list. This comes after the DHS Inspector General published a report last July that pointed to concerns about how the Emergency Management Agency handles the security of government-issued mobile devices. Among other issues, the report centered on concerns with international travel. FEMA policies stipulate that employees cannot bring government devices abroad, while DHS policy requires the use of loaner devices and that any device detected internationally without authorization is turned off. The inspector general found that FEMA was not effectively tracking whether data on devices taken on international travel had been wiped. FEMA is still working on fixes called out in their report, which were originally expected in December of last year, to address the issue. In other news, a decade after releasing its landmark national cybersecurity framework, the National Institute of Standards and Technology this week released version 2.0, an updated document that emphasizes governance and supply chain issues for both public and private sector entities. The new guidance, which outlines high-level cybersecurity outcomes that can be used by any organization to better understand, assess, prioritize, and communicate its cybersecurity efforts, adds a sixth core function, govern. Two previously stated pillars identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Govern focuses on how an organization's cybersecurity risk management strategy, expectations, and policy are established, communicated, and monitored, the framework states, and is intended to address the implementation and oversight of a cybersecurity strategy. Lori Lacasio, Director of NIST and Undersecretary of Commerce for Standards and Technology, said during an Aspen Digital event Monday, Quote, govern really represents the fact that we have to bring this into the boardroom for discussion. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. The Department of Justice works with highly sensitive sets of information, and because of that, the bar to secure it is much higher than for other civilian agencies. As CIO, Melinda Rogers is highly focused on delivering a zero-trust security architecture across the department to better secure its national security systems and the information within them. 
Rogers recently spoke with my colleague Wyatt Cash at the Zero Trust Security Summit about that journey and how DOJ is thinking about modernizing its cybersecurity. Let's tune into that discussion now. So, Melinda, first of all, thank you for joining us. And, you know, I think I, just to set the stage a little bit here, um, you know, you, you have a really diverse portfolio here of different folks we've talked to, and there's a lot of impressive people we've heard from today. But you, you kind of oversee some 40 components last time I checked, uh, including the FBI and some other notable organizations um, that essentially are charged with upholding the law, um, keeping our country safe, um, and, you know, protecting civil rights. And, and at the same time, um, last I checked, you also oversee a, a pretty significant budget of something like $3.5 billion of IT investments annually. Seems like you have a pretty full plate. So let me start by asking, how do you go about uh, coordinating efforts to ensure you know, that, that all of your components have the, both the resources and the manpower um, you know, to implement some of these key pillars of zero trust architecture? Well, Wyatt, that's quite the introduction. Yes, spot on on everything you said. It is a lot. It's a lot of a lot. I would say from um, our organization's perspective, certainly we have 40-plus offices. At the end of the day, each of these offices, they have their own appropriated dollars. They have... Uh, they're faced with uh, all sorts of incoming priorities from different facets of their mission. And in addition to prioritizing what they need to do for their mission uh, operations, they also have to consider what the department needs them to implement from an IT security perspective. I would say from my office's perspective or any of the IT offices, the best thing you could do is to really clearly articulate what is it you're trying to accomplish and ultimately why is it important for organizations to adopt a zero trust framework. Um, you need to break it down into plain English, plain business terms because ultimately it is these stakeholders who have control over the budget who's going to then hopefully understand what you're trying to accomplish to then dole out the dollars that you need to implement zero trust in your organization. Um, I would say in, in terms of coordination, at least within my um, uh, enterprise, where we are trying to drive department-wide initiatives, I take it upon my office's self to make sure we lead the way, we're the ones to lean in, we're the ones to be the guinea pigs, testers, um, drink our own champagne, and sometimes, as I would describe, as the sufferers of scar tissues. And, um, and as part of that experience, we sh that's one way for us to also learn, did our theory or our supposition of what should work, did it actually work as intended? And if not, we can make adjustments before we push it out to our component offices to adopt. So ultimately, my goal is to make sure that uh, as we push out mandates from the department, it's already sort of unwelcome sometimes, as it may be, if I could lessen the degree of pain or make it a little bit more attractive, make sure my constituents understand the benefits they're getting for this, um, that's really what I hope to accomplish at the end of the day. It's a great example of leadership on that. I appreciate that. Um, as you listen to your counterparts at the different components, and, uh, what are you hearing uh, in the way of the, the most significant uh, either technical or operational challenges you know, um, to implement a zero trust environment? And, and, and what either can either OMB or CISA or industry at large do to help, help them? Sure, I think from a technical perspective, it's really about the propagation of the solution, let's say we're implementing a new product, being able to push that all the way out into the field offices and being able to integrate with existing solutions. A lot of us already have 
plenty of IT in place at different field offices. So for us to then push out a new tool, are we taking away a tool so that it's a little bit less complex, or are we pushing out something that's additive? So I would say the integration challenge is very real. Um, at the end of the day, it's after you integrate something, you push out a solution, then invariably that solution will come out with an upgrade, with an enhancement. So then how do you then propagate that out to the field offices? So to me, it's not a once and done by any means. It is really coming up with what do you want your framework to look like for your organization, and then sustaining that, it's, it's, it's uh, nonstop. It is not a once and done, it is ongoing. Um, operationally, I would say the largest challenge is operationalizing, if I could use that word, zero trust. Um, it is complicated. It touches on the assets, the devices, the humans, the security state of the devices, and how all of that is orchestrated together. And on top of that, you have the users who are going to experience something different as you move into this zero trust framework and are your help desk personnel ready to answer those questions that's gonna be coming in from the end users? And then also there's the training of the system administrators, network security personnel. So uh, at the end of the day, I would say operationalizing zero trust, that's the key challenge. And from a technical perspective, it's not so much in the zeros and ones of the coding, but it's really about the technical integration persistently. And then I'd like to add a little extra context that's uh, a little bit unique to your department, and that's the issue of national security concerns. So can you talk a little bit about how you're kind of doing the management of zero trust and security uh, against that backdrop to really make sure that national security concerns are also being addressed? Sure. Wyatt, I think from my vantage point, I really look at this as the zero trust architecture that we need to implement across the entire department. Um, fortunately for the Department of Justice, we really have had quite some time in putting together a good defense and depth infrastructure that has allowed us to pivot into the next iteration of zero trust. Um, really, at the end of the day, whether in a system processes information, national security information, or some other types of information, law enforcement sensitive, it's the same construct. It's the same construct of knowing who is accessing your information system. Does this person have the rights to access this information? What device is this person coming from? The security posture of that device and bringing all of that together. I think with national security information, certainly the, the concept of insider threat comes into play, right? The information is extremely sensitive. So, and, and that's part and parcel with what we're trying to do with Zero Trust, which is for um, the individuals that have the limited access to the national um, security information. Are we monitoring their utilization? Is there any anomalies in their patterns? Um, and then also privileged users, those with elevated uh, rights are to what degree are we actually tracking how they're using the information system or administering the information system? And then I, I always like to um, kind of ask this question as well. We know that you know you've had quite a background in the financial services industry, and so I'm curious how that's continuing to inform your efforts around you know combating fraud and uh, particularly uh, how is DOJ's IT investments evolving now uh, to address some of that? Sure, uh, I, I would say my background in financial services has really, uh, I would say, built the foundation for me to really focus on the return on investment. My background is in 
finance and accounting. So at the end of the day, it is about as we invest monies into these different technologies, processes, are we getting that return? And as we look at whether we're getting that return, how are we measuring that? I'm a big numbers person. I love numbers. I need to be able to measure how have we made the world a better place. And if um, our program managers can't articulate that, then I think it's time to go back to the drawing table and figure this out. We have to be able to describe the outcomes, what have what are the things that are uh, better than today than we were yesterday? And ultimately, as an organization, even as a government entity, I think it's important for us to be continuously improving. I can't just rest on my laurels and say, yep, I got this new widget, I'm done. But I, every day, I have to be better today than I was yesterday. I have to be better tomorrow than I am today. And then next, um, you know, I was noticing that on the most recent Fatara scorecard that DOJ earned an A for cyber and modernizing government technology. And I know a lot of folks would say the Fatara, Fatara scorecard is kind of a trailing measure of what's going on. It's not completely capturing thing, but I'm intrigued. What would you say, since those were both improvements since the last card, um, what, what would you attribute some of those gains to and what have you learned from that? I would attribute that actually to Fatara in action. Um, I think the requirements certainly give us, gives myself as the CIO insight into what the department is spending on in terms of IT. It certainly gives me a, a seat at the table to make sure that as I look at investments that are coming across my desk, to make sure that they're actually putting in the dollars for cybersecurity, for Zero's Trust, to make sure that they're aligning with the department's objectives. And I would be remiss if I don't give at least the department CISO VU a shout out for uh, doing the hard work of um, making sure that our uh, infrastructure is solid. But the reality is, you know, it's, it's never done, right? There's always new patches coming in. There's always new uh, configuration settings we need to be mindful of. And documentation, I know nobody likes documentation. You still have to write down what you have and what you don't have. It's truly a, um, I would say, it's rolling up the sleeves, it's blocking and tackling, it is about sustaining the work. But in terms of modernization and cyber, those two really go hand in hand. If you, as an organization, are investing in IT, you are inherently going to pick up the latest security controls that comes with the new tool sets. So um, one really dovetails nicely with the other. You can't really achieve a good cyber score if you're swimming in a bunch of legacy systems. You need both. Absolutely. And then in our last couple of minutes, uh, talk about what maybe are your three biggest priorities, both uh, overseeing IT at the Department of Justice and then working with your component colleagues. Absolutely. Uh, those with, uh, with respect to the three, I would say uh, continuing our who said journey? Steve said no journey. It is a journey for us uh, with our unification of our identity management solution. We do have a lot of employees, a lot of component offices, and we have to chip it away. That's one. Secondly, continuing the uh, deployment of our uh, zero trust broker model so that we can orchestrate all this information coming together on who's using what, when. And then last but certainly not least is bringing in uh, mobile devices, specifically phones, into our zero trust architecture to make sure that we have mobile threat defense capabilities also on uh, those endpoints. Well, terrific. So anything else that you'd like to share of what you're doing at the department uh, with your team and uh, just, again, looking ahead? Sure. I, I would go back to, um, 
I think building relationships is incredibly important. At least in my organization, I think it's, it's not a top-down by any means, at least not from my position. It is about collaborating with the component offices, make sure we reach a mutual understanding of what needs to be done. They have their missions, but I also have the responsibility to make sure that the department aligns its initiatives with federal mandates, whether it's FISMA or the Executive Order 14028. Uh, building those relationships, really understanding the nuts and bolts of what's in place, uh, the architecture, uh, I think that goes a long way. And working together to figure out if one scenario does not work, what's the alternative? What's a compensating control to put in place? Um, and yes, you know, standardizing to one is a beautiful number, but sometimes that's not always realistic or possible. So to the degree that we can keep the variation as few as possible, but also as standardized and streamlined as possible, I think that's utopia. And I'll let you know when I get there. That would be terrific. I have a minute left, so I'm not going to waste it. Um, tell us, lastly, as you're thinking about, since we've been talking a lot about applying AI increasingly in security applications, how are you organizing your team uh, and your efforts around that? I think, uh, at least for us, the biggest opportunity, and probably for many people out here too, is really in the log information. We're certainly required to audit, uh, log a lot more information, a lot more data, and we have we adjust as we actually have invested quite a bit of dollars to expand what we're logging, and now it's actually applying potentially artificial intelligence where appropriate with consultation from our privacy attorneys. I want to make sure I say that too. To make sure that as we look at this uh, material, how can we leverage information from all this log data that we've been collecting? Reality is, historically, we've used log data for incident response. When something happens, we go back and look at this. But I think there's real, a real opportunity there to see what could be applied so that it's more instant, more predictive, potentially. Well, Melinda Rogers, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights from the Department of Justice. Thank you, Wyatt. It's nice to be here. Terrific. Let's give her a great round of applause. You can learn more about Zero Trust Security at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Once again, I'll pass it back to my colleague, Wyatt Cash, for this segment sponsored by Amazon Web Services. When U.S. federal agencies need to deploy a new software application or information system, they must first ensure it complies with a comprehensive set of government-approved security standards and ultimately get assigned ATO or authorization to operate. That process, though, can be cumbersome and makes it hard to introduce uh, IT capabilities at an agile speed. I'm Wyatt Cash with Scoop News Group, and here to talk about the concept of agile ATOs and why they are increasingly important to moving faster in government are Dave Raley, CX Digital Program Manager with the Marine Corps Community Services, and Ryan Pratt, Chief Executive Officer uh, with Raven Solutions. And this edition of The Daily Scoop is brought to you by AWS. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And Ryan, I'd like to start with you. Can you explain what the Agile ATO process is and how it differs from the historical process? Yeah, yeah, that's a good place to start. So the Agile ATO process really defines a standard operating procedure for the risk management framework. And it does this at the tactical and execution level, so really four programs. So ultimately it drives improved outcomes through automation and process improvement reducing complexity, resources, cost, and time. 
And it focuses on the entire end-to-end value stream to realize consistent and predictable performance improvements uh, to reduce the the typical 12 to 18 month uh, ATO process delivery cycle that DOD uh, components usually face. And then Dave, um, how does the Agile ATO process enhance the mission at the U.S. Marine Corps? And what does it actually enable and what's it doing for you? Yeah, well, thanks, Wyatt. Uh, that actually is probably the most exciting thing to me is the, is from the program perspective. So our future state of operations really depends on our, our proficiency to rapidly and securely uh, deliver resilient software capabilities. Um, and those capabilities are specifically helping enable the way that we uh, do service delivery and support our marine quality of life. Um, so for us, um, we're now in this position of deploying mission capabilities at the speed of relevance. And that's such a critical thing with that young Marine to be relevant um, and support them. Um, as Ryan just kind of uh, started to allude to, this control implementation and assess- assessment, which is a part of that ATO process, um, we're doing that at scale now under 30 days, uh, whereas, uh, whereas that process takes much longer typically. And a key component as uh, to support our business really is this cybersecurity is now provided as a service and a business enabler as opposed to a gatekeeper function. Um, and uh, it's a dramatic reduction in the cost of delay compared to our legacy ATO process, even within our organization. 30 days would be a remarkable achievement for a lot of folks. So that is impressive. Um, Just to follow up on that, can you talk a little bit about, so what are the key enablers for Agile ATO process? Where are you seeing the the biggest enabling differences? Yeah, so there's uh, several areas. Um, So I'll try to highlight the most important ones. One, the teams start to now organize themselves around value value delivery of the capability as opposed to these kind of siloed functions where each function is waiting for the next function to pass its task to it. And it introduces um, a ton of waste and delay in the system. Uh, Those things look like uh, very long queues or wait times between picking up and doing tasks. Um, very large batches of work um, that's done in a very inefficient way. Um, and uh, so we've we've started to do some things um, that have enabled that, that are visualizing the work in progress. Then that allows us to swarm on the bottlenecks or in the, the workflow process to allow us to actually do that. We shift our technical and cyber resources left very early in the software development lifecycle process so that we are not bolting cybersecurity on at the end, but we're actually integrating the team. So that comes back to that team's organizing around value delivery. Um, another, uh, to me, another pillar of the process has been a very highly integrated our integrated and high trust relationship with our with C4, which is our authorizing uh, office that reviews all of our packages, with our information system security managers, with our security control uh, validators. All of those things has enhanced the level of quality um, for the uh, ATO packages that we're submitting, and the results there is speed which is so, so important. So like I mentioned, inside 30 days, that's step one to five in the RMF framework um, or the in, in RMF. And we're doing this now routinely and at scale. Um, in fact, our most uh, recent package submittal uh, in step five was submitted uh, in within one business day, we had a signed letter from the authorizing official, which, you know, is a remarkable achievement. And it is, uh, 
reflective of the level of quality and trust with our AOs, or with our AO. That really is remarkable. Uh, Ryan, um, I'd be interested in your perspective as you work with different agencies as well. What, what lessons can other services take away from some of the things that uh, Dave's been talking about? If I had to distill the lessons learned, I'd say begin by really articulating the problem space well. If you begin the journey with the intention of enhancing cybersecurity and risk management as a bolt-on practice that occurs at the end of software lifecycle activities, you've really missed the forest for the trees. And ultimately, you'll only see marginal benefit to any process improvement initiative if you define the problem space that way. RMF is intended to integrate cybersecurity and risk management into the software development lifecycle from inception. It needs to be baked in, not bolted on. And so we want to shift cyber and risk management left. And remember that the objective is to field IT capability to the warfighter as efficiently as possible. And we're not doing process improvement for its own sake. Second, look at the various integration layers that actually need improvement. Uh, we divide those into four unique domains, tooling, artifact creation, value stream layer, and metrics. Within each of those domains, focus on your end-to-end -end process improvement. Realize that local optimization of a sub-process rarely contributes to a significant increase in outcome and can even negatively impact overall performance. So keep your intention on enhancing the end-to-end -end outcome. At the value stream layer, you want to focus on improving the flow of work, reducing batch size, limiting work in progress, and creating that visual management system. Finally, at the metric level, you want to begin by understanding the impact of being blind to cues. So track your active work time versus wait time. And in most organizations, that wait time far exceeds actual work. Um, so without this understanding and insight, there's a tendency to over-index on visible forms of waste, which are uh, generally inefficient engineering activity or some process. But making activities more efficient is actually much less important than eliminating inactivity. So by framing the initiative uh, with the cost of delay and the economic incentive that is there, uh, you will get alignment from your stakeholders. It's an interesting way of looking at that. Uh, and then lastly, uh, gentlemen, um, what, what's next for Agile ATO? Is there more room to compress the uh, DevSec uh, ops, uh, cycle, if you will, and getting to ATOs even faster? Uh, Ryan, maybe I'll ask you that one first. Yeah, I, th I think we try to keep it at that 30-day mark as our benchmark. Now, we, you know, as Dave mentioned earlier, we do have uh, initiatives that are actually occurring faster than that, but that seems to be a good benchmark that we that we use as our metric. I think what's next for us is is really about sharing this message across the DoD and getting it out, uh, formatting in a way that's digestible. Uh, for folks so they can start to realize these benefits within their own commands. And then uh, we are working with AWS to create a marketplace offering for this as well um, so we can get that um, to people in a little bit quicker and more efficiently. Yeah, I'd add, uh, so similar, uh, but from the uh, program management side, uh, I have uh, interest in sharing these lessons specifically within the Marine Corps community and within the Navy uh, and 
helping uh, understand at the various uh, levels of um, Marine Corps, whether it's uh, C4, uh, MACOG, MARFOR, Cyber, and other other commands, these best practices. Uh, literally, this is um, millions and millions of dollars in delay, uh, avoid, cost avoidance from the cost of delay if we can implement some of these things. So really uh, passionate about sharing that broadly. Um, and internally, we still have a legacy cybersecurity team managing our on-prem um, capabilities, and we have already started to apply some of these lessons there. I don't believe that really getting very much tighter inside 30 days is necessary. Uh, the way that Ryan and I have looked at this as we've uh, built this capability for MCCS, um, that now gets us at a place where cybersecurity and ATOs are no longer a blocker or a restriction on the ability to deliver capability. We now uh, turn to focusing our effort on working with the teams, developing the product, deploying it, and all the regular things you would do instead of focusing all the effort on cybersecurity and worrying about whether you've got your ATO or not. So we basically remove this as an organizational obstacle for enabling the business. Well, if we can do that for more applications, uh, that would obviously speed up a, a lot of deployment and ultimately bring a mission enablement to, you know, to the warfighters and those in the community at large uh, much faster, I'm sure. Well, um, Dave Raley and Ryan Pratt, really appreciate your taking a few minutes to give us a fresh perspective on Agile ATOs and, and how it's helping, um, um, in this case, the Marine Corps Community Services and the U.S. Marine Corps at large um, just uh, deploy their software more effectively. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for the yeah, time. Thanks, Wyatt. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back next week, as always, with brand new episodes. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks for listening.